What's going on, everybody, and welcome back to the Abundant Journey Podcast. It is 2024 officially, New Year, and we're super excited you're coming along with us on the journey. We got a bunch of guests lined up, and one is today Casper Ballman, and he has an incredible story, both with a long endurance athlete professionally, but also he has been an investor in the self storage space. But before we bring Casper in, Nick, how are you, sir? We're ringing in the new year. What's going on, man? Hey, I am fantastic. Uh, Like you said, really, really excited about uh, where we're going with the podcast this year and uh, kicking it off with a bang by having Casper on. Casper, thanks for jumping in with us, man. How are you? And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, guys. Um, I'm doing great. I'm actually doing great. I have... uh, I have a lot of excitement for the new year. I think, uh, you know, the 2023 was the year leading up to this year for us. So I, I don't think I've ever been more excited to start a new year than I am this year. So, but I love it. Yeah. But I mean, I love it. Yep. I, about me is not, uh, <laughs> I had a very, very normal childhood. I mean, my mom, dad, nine to five, you know, mom was, uh, uh they, they were divorced, uh, all my life, um, more or less, but didn't really have any entrepreneurial sort of uh, touch in my early childhood. Uh, I always loved to work, though. And I remember going to school and all that, never really enjoyed that, to be honest. Um, but I remember always waiting to be 13, because that's the day you could legally work in Denmark, where I'm from. <laughs> and the day I was 13, I had a job lined up at the butcher store, uh, the local butcher store oh. in the small town where I grew up. And I started working there, and it would be, you know, five in the morning before school sometimes. I would go there, I would work a few hours, and those were the absolute best days because before I went to school, I already made <laughs> 20 bucks, right? I loved it. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, I worked about you know 20, 20 hours a week or so, and I absolutely loved it. I was making at thirteen. Yeah, yeah, it was great. I mean, when you when you work three four hours before you go to school, and then you have like Saturday and Sunday where you could easily you know bang out ten hours, no problem. It was great, and yeah, I was making five bucks an hour, but to me that was great money, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I had a lot of fun there. I learned a ton, and you know. I think I worked there all until I was 18. Um, so after that, became a bartender uh, while going through school and had a bit of odd jobs after that, like in, both during the summer and between the next, this education and the next education that I did, which was uh, like an automation engineering edu- education. Um, so worked in construction and metal worker and all sorts of things. So all of this doesn't really have anything to do with being where I am today, but it was, uh, I think, leading up to it. Um, because that's yeah, when I started. Totally. That's when I started sports. <laughs> I got, uh, always wanted to go to the, to the Army. It was my big dream. Um, Special Forces, more specifically. And I was training for those mm. uh, to be accepted there. I was training, training, training. And I passed all the tests with flying collars. But then when I went into the doctor's checkup, I'd had a back injury, a, a serious back injury. 
um, a couple of years back and, and then was not accepted. So I was like, God damn, you know, what can I do to prove everyone that, you know, I can really do this, right? So I started, that's when I started doing triathlon and becoming an athlete. And I just found that I really enjoyed it and I was, I was pretty good at it. So mm. I did that at the same time as, as I was in, uh, in, in school for engineering, automation engineering. And I got better and better at it. I was then offered to go to Serbia to work for a year and take part in a transformation of a production facility in Serbia. It's like, I don't know, 18, 19 at the point, 19 at, the, at that time. Wow. Went there, lived there for a year. And I remember the phone call with this uh, guy from an elite triathlon team that I applied to, um, uh, where he said, uh, you know, I got accepted into the team. I was just ecstatic. And from there, <laughs> I, went, I went back to Denmark, right? And, you know, it just became more and more of, the, of that training and, and triathlon journey for me. I remember, mm -hmm. seeing, I remember seeing the first, the first training schedule that this guy gave me, my coach. It was like three trainings every single day. And I, like, and I looked at him, you, you know, I have a full-time job, right? And he looked at me, he said, yeah, yeah, I know that. But your competitors don't. So what are you going to do about it? Uh, he said, you well, know, if you, and it's, this quote really stuck with me. He said, if you want to achieve what other people can't, you have to be willing to do or sacrifice what others won't, right? And it's mm. like, that stuck with me ever since. But, okay, I made a deal with my, with my job there. Um, I was working at a, a factory as an automation engineer at the time. And, you know, I could do my first exercise in the morning from 5 to 7. And then I worked from 7 till noon. And then from noon till 2, I was allowed to do whatever exercise I had in the schedule. And then again, worked until four or five, whatever it might be. And then after that, I could do my third exercise of the day. Um, that was a tight schedule. But I think that that was, amazing. Oh, yeah. that was an amazing time. It, I, I learned a lot about discipline and hard work. And I did a lot of competitions and I didn't do well in all of them. But then all of a sudden I stood at, the, at that start line of the first competition where my goal was to win, right? It was Ironman Copenhagen. I remember it clear as day. And, you know, everyone was there to cheer me up, my family, everyone who was supporting me through the journey. I had a few sponsors at the time that really believed in me. And off we go. And, uh, you know, I remember crossing the finish line. I, was, I came in second. Uh, which was disappointing to me at the time, but wow. then uh, the first place was disqualified for doping. So that was, it was pretty amazing. And all of a sudden I was standing there and I was qualified to the world championships. And three months out, I had to raise like $20,000 $20, or so. And I didn't have a dollar to my name. I spent everything on equipment and coaches and, you know, everything I had was just poured straight back into you know, getting everything ready for this race. So I went on, I was invited into radios and all sorts of things. And I, you know, spoke my case and got sponsored and I raised the money and I, I got out, I got out there too. It was on Hawaii. And um, 
I lived in this hole-in-the-ground sort of place because I couldn't afford to live at the hotel with everyone else. But it was amazing. I was there, right? And all of my, all of the, the people that were my idols before, uh, you know, just three months ago, they, these guys were my idols. I watched them in TV. You know, all of a sudden, I was raising alongside them. And I will say, you know, not as equal. Nice. So I got my ass whooped naturally. But, uh, you know, it was, still, <laughs> it was still just being there, raising with them. It was amazing. So, um, yeah, and then on the flight home, uh, after getting my ass whooped by the real professionals, so to speak, I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I met my, my now wife uh, in, in the airplane on the way home. Went back to Denmark. And three months later, I decided it was time to quit my, my full-time job. So I did that, and I moved to Moscow to live with my wife um, that I met three months ago. Uh, we were not married back then at all. But, uh, <laughs> so I, live, I, I, I just moved to yeah. Moscow. I did full-time full -time now for, for my training. And uh, a little while ago, I started, uh, co-founded a company called uh, Welta Mallorca uh, back then. I, I co-founded that before I moved to Moscow. That was bringing people uh, to um, Mallorca every year, giving them the experience of being a professional athlete or training as a professional athlete with all mm. the support of my sponsors. And that was my first sort of dabble into starting something on my own, um, which was great. It was fun. Um, living in Moscow a couple of years, started, founded another company in Moscow, Top Sport Import, where I leveraged all my connections uh, in, in the European emerging sponsor brands and brought them into Moscow. That was a, so Moscow is an amazing place, but they don't have any of the European mm. brands or anything like that. So I brought that in there and we sold a lot of stuff, but I, wow. it was just not a moneymaker at all for me. It was just a lot of work and no real output. Um, but it's still going on today, just without my interference. Um, so after having lived there, what did we do? Yeah, after having lived there a couple of years, my girlfriend at the time and, I, and me, uh, in 2020, we moved to the U.S. And, and what brought you out here? Yeah, so I think it was just time to, to leave Moscow. We, we wanted to start a family, you know? And I retired from sports, um, like in that level of sports anyway. And <laughs> I, I had an exit from the company, Welta Mallorca, that, that we started uh, because it was built on me being an athlete and my brand. And, you know, since I was not an athlete anymore, <laughs> it didn't make sense to me. And sure. yeah, we, we moved over here, wanted to start a family. My wife is a, she's a, she's a citizen, so she went to school here in the U.S. and everything. Um, so I applied for a green card, but it was 2020, start 2020. I mean, no one got anything wow. done. So I was waiting and waiting and waiting. Yeah. <laughs> and I was, I wasn't able to do anything. I couldn't work. I couldn't, I couldn't work. I couldn't leave the country. Then I would lose my space in the green card program. So I was just renovating a few apartments that my wife had bought many years ago when she lived here. 
So I was renovating those, you know, we bought a house together, I renovated that. But after a year, I got severely bored. Um, and we were looking at, you know, what's the next best step for us? And we started looking into commercial real estate. Yeah. And we stumbled across self-storage really by accident. I think it was a post on Twitter. And it just came along and we started looking into it. I started, you know, hitting up people, you know, to learn more. I went to the conferences and, you know, it just, the more we learned, the more it made sense. The asset class was great. And we started making offers on properties, on market, uh, off market, whatever it might be. But I don't know if you guys were making offers on storage facilities in 2021, but <laughs> I mean, I had a very hard time penciling those uh, properties out with, you know, my level of knowledge and the margin of stupidity that I wanted for my first facility anyway. <laughs> uh, so we didn't get any buildings at all, any, any self-storage facilities at all. So we were like, what, what are we going to do? We really want to enter this asset class, right? Should we build it from scratch or what else could we do? So we decided to convert decided to go the conversion way, self-storage conversion. And I had a technical background, so you know, I, could, I could help with that. And I felt comfortable with that. But really the biggest barrier to entry when we went out and started bidding on these things was no one took us seriously. You know, I could make a bid mm. on something that was sown for self-storage in a great area, good saturation, everything we like, checks every box. But they'll come back to us and say, yeah, thank you for your offer. But, you know, so-and-so self-storage company LLC that developed 20 properties already made an offer as well. Would you, would you either like to beat their offer by 20% and let us make a chance, take a chance on you? Or, mm. you know, we'll, we'll just go with them. So that didn't work out. And that was a lot of offers that we made that just went that, that route. But then we started flipping, flipping it on its head a little bit. So instead of bidding on properties that were on the market, we started bidding on properties that were off the market instead, just reaching out to owners, starting to bid. Things that have been for rent or for lease for a long time, just started bidding them up on, you want to sell this, right? So finally, we got a hit, we got our first facility in Cranston. I'm sitting in it right now, right now today, I'm sitting here. Wow. And it took us uh, nine months to build it after we bought it. Uh, it was a conversion project. Uh, it's about 40,000 net rentable square feet. And uh, we have an expansion on the way. So I think that's, you know, that was sort of where we were. And I'm very excited about yep. getting to that point. But then was the lease up. Mm -hmm. It was um, not as easy to operate as we thought it was. I will say. We thought it would be a lot simpler sure. and there's a lot more to it. Sure. Then I met uh, a now good friend of mine, uh, David, who's been doing self-storage for, I don't know, like I think before I was born almost. And he might have invented the asset class. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> no, and uh, you know, we I've taken some really, really good advice from him on on operations, and I think he helped us a lot. You know, get this optimized the way yeah. we wanted to, and I think we are at fifty and change percent leased up now in 
uh, in our first uh, six months of operating. So no complaints. So yeah, that's great. Well, I love the I love this I love the the beginning here. And man, you've lived so much compared to most people. I think who settle into their hometown and. They uh, get that nine to five going and maybe work their way up the corporate ladder. So let's go back a little bit because I'd love to hear some of the struggles in that storage time and what you've learned. But one of the things we were talking a few minutes before the episode of the, the military and the rejection there. And then on top of that, the training that you went through, you really talked to us a little bit about how those lessons early on helped shape you moving forward and prepared you for ownership and entrepreneurship. So talk to us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think my time as an athlete and, and everything, I think leading up to that from getting rejected from the military, I think one of the most, a few of the most important things I learned during that time was the discipline it takes to, you know, do three trainings a day, have a full-time job, the, the discipline it takes really mm. transfers over to entrepreneurship. You don't have anyone, you know, <laughs> coming after you if, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, if you don't propel yourself or your company forward. No one is going to come and knock you on the head and say, hey, you know, get moving, right? I think, you know, doing what you say you're going to do and, and don't look back. I think don't, don't be afraid to take a chance. Don't be afraid to make a decision. Mm. You know, my, my dad would always say, you know, the worst thing you can do with faced with a decision is to not make one. Even if you make the wrong decision, mm. okay, you made the wrong decision, make the best of it, right? And that action paralysis is just something I left behind a long time ago. And I do make wrong decisions. I don't make the right decision every time. But the biggest value that I've gotten from that time is learning how to cope with making the wrong decision or learning how to cope with setbacks. Because I think everyone who has gone through, you know, the entrepreneurship and I think Moses Keegan said crawling over broken glass period, he called it, like that beginning when you found your company and you work through that first few years or whatever it is until you gain traction. Um, setback is just a part of it. And what sets a lot of people apart yeah. is how they deal with that setback, how they cope with things not going your way. Do they sit down and, you know, give up or, or find another, or do they find another way? You know, I think that's one of the most important things I've taken with me because you have a seven, eight, nine hour race in Ironman. Things are not going to go the way you planned. I promise you. <laughs> and you've been training for this one race for a year. And it is devastating if things, you know, don't go right. You put so many hours, so much sweat, tears, money, sacrifice, everything into this. And you don't get another chance before next year. So, yeah, you have to, you have to adapt. So I think that's probably one of the most important things I've taken with me. 
I love that. And going back even a little bit further, I mean, I think it's unique to hear part of your story being at 13 years old, you couldn't wait to work and that that was just something that was kind of in your DNA of, uh, of wanting to work really hard. And I'm curious, just as you reflect, if that's where did that wiring come from? Were you just born that way? Was it something that you saw in your parents? Was there something <laughs> particularly that was motivating you to want to start working right away? And how have you seen that trait within yourself, um, you know, propel you forward as an entrepreneur? Yeah, yeah, good question. My dad always worked really, really hard. Uh, he worked a nine to five job, but he always worked extremely hard. He traveled a lot. And I still remember uh, he would take me out and have me help him around the house and all that when I was very young. And every time I would put my hands in my pocket, if I felt like there was nothing to do, he would take whatever tool he had in his hand and he would like slap me over my hand with, uh, with uh, while they were in the pocket to like, Someone's working, you don't put your hands in the pocket, right? So I think, you know, that was sort of not saying that that propelled yeah. me forward, but it definitely installed that mentality that you can't sit around doing nothing. Like, till this day, if yeah. someone else is doing something, it doesn't matter what it is. If it's, uh, you know, if it's some of my contractors are carrying in bags of cement or whatever, and I'm walking the same way they are, doesn't matter if I'm wearing a dress shirt or whatever it is. I'll pick up a bag of cement Grabbing if I'm walking that cement, direction, yeah. and I will put it on my shoulder, and I will drop it off wherever it needs to be dropped off. You know, I, so that was yeah. installed for me very, very early on, and I think, you know, I think I'm still, I still believe, even though I've seen a lot of great talent, raw talent out there, that hard work beats talent every single time. So mm. you can't just be talented and hope that will take you through life. It definitely helps, but you need to work hard. So I, I think, that. I think, yeah, I think that was that. That's definitely uh, something that I've taken with me, and you know, I, I keep working hard. Um, I think sometimes, sometimes I get caught up in work for the sake of working. I think. If that makes sense, I, I focus too much on the small things here and there, and um, that that's definitely one of my downfalls. And uh, at the place we are right now with with the company, where we are we're doing projects, uh, larger projects, larger conversion projects in Boston, in New York, um, and have more in the pipeline for 2024. I think it's important for me right now that we build a team that can take care of these uh, smaller, smaller things, day-to-day -day operations, so that I can start wearing a bit fewer hats, if that makes sense, and focus on sure. what is the great value drivers and, and the direction <clears throat> of our company. Um, I think that's really important. Uh, but something I'm having a bit of a hard time doing, to be honest. Um, I enjoy wearing a lot of hats, and I think that's probably part of the entrepreneurial DNA, right? You enjoy having your fingers in every single <laughs> pot in your company. <laughs> so that's uh, yeah. something I have to learn. Oh. Yeah. 
No, and I think that's something that we we hear often, you know, that transition from wearing all the hats, being the one making the decisions and 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 kind of letting go and trusting people, but that's truly how you scale. I mean, and we've heard that time and time again um, from a lot of our other guests. I, you know, my mind goes back to one other question just about your upbringing in the race time. You know, we talk a lot about fear and how that holds people back. You know, I want to attack fear from a, a little different angle with you because you were willing to go for it and whatever it took to be successful. So I, I love that side. But as you were sharing your story and talking about how you had to raise 20000 you didn't know how you were going to do that. You didn't have any money to your name. You were living in, you know, hole-in-the-wall type of place. When you were in that, was your mindset like, hey, I'm just happy to be here. I'll do whatever it takes. Or were there fears or were there was maybe a moment when you were like, man, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> I've given up and sacrificed everything for this. So curious, just kind of your mindset and fear and kind of how you overcame that during that time frame. Sure, sure. I think right after that race, like at that that period, you know, I was I was almost high all the time. Like, uh, not literally, but you know, the feeling. And <laughs> I could I could conquer the goddamn world right there. I was not scared of anything. Whatever mm. came at me, I would be able to come to overcome. I was one hundred percent certain of that. Um, I think you know, winning that race and going through that period, I learned that I. I and most people actually can do whatever they set their mind to if they want it enough. And so the question was not, can I do it? The question is, do I want it enough? And the answer to that was clear. Yes, I do. So at that point, I was not scared. Not at all. Um, when I quit my job and moved to Moscow, on the other hand, I was scared shitless. <laughs> I had absolutely no idea what I was doing, how I was going to survive, how I was going to live, uh, but I was very excited about the move. And I've had, you know, fear has definitely been, been there. Um, and I think everything is a calculated risk, right? Every investment mm -hmm. we make is yep. a calculated risk. Every move we make is a calculated risk. And I've, I've done, I don't think I've done something that I was not that I was not comfortable with or sure that we could handle. So I've sort of kept the fear a little bit back. I think being scared doesn't get you anywhere. And, and if you're truly scared, then you made the wrong move. You need to take a step back. Mm. Helpful paradigm. And I mean, it was really in that move to Moscow and making that step that that's where your entrepreneurial endeavors really first started, right? I mean, that's kind of where you made the transition from taking all of the discipline that you'd learned through triathlon training and actually applying that to, uh, to business. Um, it's so my understanding of uh, your first business was more of a kind of a service-based, almost kind of also sort of in the uh, tourism industry of uh, helping people uh, train and experience uh, Mayorkas. Um, your second business was more of a, a commerce 
company. Does that sound mm-hmm. right? Is with what yeah. you're doing with uh, reselling uh, European goods in in Moscow, and uh, and then of course what you're doing now is is self storage. And so that's been kind of interesting to me that you've made a handful of jumps um, across different industries. And uh, I'm curious just what you're looking for when you see opportunity. Um, Cause I imagine it's not purely random <laughs> that you went from, you know, one to the other. And so what is the, the criteria uh, that stuck out to, to you about each of those opportunities or what are the kinds of things that you're looking for when you're like, yeah, this might be something I want to do or try. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I think for, like, I, I actually started uh, Welltime Mallorca, the, the traveling company, um, tourist company, earlier before I moved to Moscow. Um, and that was, I think that was just, I did what I knew, right? I knew I had the sponsors, I had the support to, to get this off the ground. So that was just an opportunity that, that I had and, and had the capabilities to do it. Again, at the time, I, I didn't have a single dollar to my name. So it needed to be something that I didn't need to put any, any capital into. And um, we built this up, and, and that was great. Um, then the same thing actually happened. I had a network. I had, I had the sponsor a network to, to start a company in Moscow that would, that would bring all those goods in. So that was also just due to the nature of what I was currently doing. It was a natural extension of my brand as an athlete. Um, now, the move to self-storage was not a natural extension of that at all, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you mean Roka and, and uh, those uh, big triathlon brands are not also in self-storage? <laughs> not, not to my knowledge, not to my knowledge, but you never know. I've seen the weirdest companies being in self-storage, I'll say. <laughs> but sure, sure. I mean, I also just like, I want to stretch that, you know, I have amazing support from my wife, right? She always been there. She has a W two job that, you know, she did have a W two job. Now we work together, uh, which is also a journey on its own. But she had a W two job at all times, and without her, there's no chance that I would be where we would be where we are today. Like that safety it provides mm. definitely deserves recognition for sure. Um, oh yeah. Uh, I think that's important to a lot of people. I know that's that's has an entrepreneurial spirit. They have a, a, a husband or wife who is, you know, has that stable W two job and, you know, sort of sort of keeps it safe, so to speak, right? Um, yeah, and I I think like you said, that can kind of help alleviate some of that fear. It gives yeah. you the confidence to try different ventures, knowing you guys are going to be okay. And that's maybe part of that calculated thought process that you were sharing. Most definitely. I mean, we have a family to support, right? So we, we can't afford for things to go entirely wrong. Now, things have changed and we're now working together entirely uh, in our self-storage venture. And, you know, it's, it's actually both a blessing and a challenge, right? I don't know if any of you have tried to work with your spouse, but like leaving things in the office is tough. You know, when you have disagreements, when when there are things that 
you know, you, you want to take the company in one direction, she wants to take it in another direction. How do you just leave that and not discuss that at the dinner table, right? Um, so that's something we're, we're working through. And I think as the company grows and more employees come in, uh, that becomes easier. But right now, when, you know, we are sole decision makers, that's, it's tough. It's tough. Sure. So it becomes a lot of work discussions. But I think, mm. you know, going back to why we went into self-storage was really, we looked at, we looked at a lot of different asset classes. We knew that we enjoyed doing residential real estate and we had built a small portfolio at that time, like seven properties or so. But we also knew that something like COVID came in. We saw that, right? And we could not evict any of the tenants if they stopped paying rent. And that scared us mm -hmm. a little bit. So we wanted to diversify that portfolio into other income streams. Uh, so we decided that commercial property was a good way of doing that. Something that was not single tenant, we decided. Um, so self-storage was, was that for us. Um, not that we had any prior experience in it or, or anything like that, but uh, my wife is a former management consultant, so she did some work for, uh, for Prim, and they dabbled into uh, alternative asset classes, self-storage amongst them. So she got a little bit of exposure there, and I think that just made us more comfortable taking the step. Um, yeah, we we talk we talk a lot here on the show about educating yourself. And we've had some attorneys who say, "Hey, get in, educate before you jump into different things." And I think you're kind of talking about that right now, where we, you know, you're you, you're using the words like we explored it and we wanted to gain knowledge and experience of it. So curious what that education journey looked like. Um, and when did you jump in? I mean, you, you mentioned David, you mentioned going to some conferences. What did that education period look like for you? Oh, I think I, I probably hit up every single person who has something to do with storage that was within my vicinity. I mean, <laughs> anyone who I could possibly reach, I would reach out to ask, Hey, you want to sit down, have a cup of coffee. I want to, you know, I want to know what you know, right? And I mean, it's so valuable. People were willing to share, and yeah. I learned so much. I went, um, I went on tours for pe from people who converted self storage facilities already. They invited me in, showed me around, like even local competitors to where we were building our self storage mm -hmm. facility. I hit them up. I said, hey, you know, we're going to be neighbors soon. This is going to happen, you know. Let's let's you know let's 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 get to know each other, huh? So I went over there, and he showed me around. And they even share, yeah, we wish we had more of these units or less of these kind of units. Or this is what we did wrong. We wish we had done that differently. Like it was amazing. And I think huh. you yeah. know that's one of my goals as well as as I have progressed in my journey and. I'm not even close to being, you know, done with my journey, right? Uh, I want to do the same thing. You know, everyone who reaches out to me, I really try to sit down with them and give them my perspective on, on whatever it is. Uh, I help people underwrite if they reach out to me. A lot of people do. 
you know, uh, what do you think about this deal? You know, what do you think about this? And so on and so on. And I tried to do what was done for me because that was such an important step. Like, it was invaluable. I mean, you can buy all these courses from uh, people who made it in self-storage, right? I, I don't want to mention any names because I, I don't have much good to say about them. Um, I, I don't think it provides that long-term value as networking with people in the field on your closer to your level provides. You know, having someone who maybe owns a hundred stores and are sitting at the top of the throne tell you about what he's currently doing and how he did it, that's just not where I was. And that wouldn't provide me the kind of value I could get from someone telling me about the two stores that he owned and how he got there and the mistakes that he made, right? So I think connecting with someone on my own level was just so important. Someone that's one step further in the journey that I can learn from. And I keep doing that today. I mean, I I love that. Uh, Multiple levels. So both Nick and I are really interested in in self-storage. We've got a few different opportunities that we're uh, actively pursuing. But as we've gotten there ourselves, um, we've taken a similar path of just trying to sit down with anybody and everybody who will talk to us about self-storage. And the thing that we've been so surprised about time and time again is the generosity of owners and operators with their time, information, the uh, the advice um, that they want to give. And I think to your point as well, it, uh, it can be really overwhelming um, if you sit down with somebody who uh, has built and owns and operates 100 plus facilities versus just sitting down with a guy that has two or three. Um, because it's like, well, I don't need to go from you know, zero to a hundred in the next six months. Like I want to go from zero to one. And so the guy that's got two or three, um, can actually perhaps speak to how to get to one, uh, in a much more like applied, understandable kind of way, uh, than the guru who, uh, um, you know, it's, it's been 30 years since he, uh, started, you know, the, the industry and whatnot looks totally different. Speaking of the industry looking different, um, we hear all the time, like, oh, self-storage, it's such a a saturated market. And, uh, you, you missed the boat on that one. You really needed to be doing it in 2017, 2018. Um, obviously here you are, you're doing it. You, uh, you started building your doing your first conversion in 2021 right uh no no actually 2022 oh so even even more <laughs> recently than that yeah so i um i'm curious what that experience has been like as you've uh, dealt with a lot of the noise uh, a lot of the cynicism about the opportunities within the class um and then i'd love for that to transition into this unique niche that you've found with uh, conversions? Um, Because I think that is a different angle than perhaps most self-storage owner operators have taken. Yeah, yeah, sure. 
So, I mean, speaking to the industry, I mean, naturally, I can't speak to how my life would have been if I had started building self-storage facilities in the 90s. I mean, uh, <laughs> so I was still wearing a diaper at the point. So, uh, <laughs> would, would, I, would I have been in a different place today? Sure, I would. But doesn't, doesn't, isn't that the same for everything? I mean... You know, it's always you look back on, oh, I wish I started this earlier. Uh, you know, I should have done this 10 years ago. Yeah, sure. But you yeah, didn't. I wish I would so, have bought Bitcoin in uh, 2012, but you know, right? here we are. <laughs> right. I agree. So I think it's kind of pointless to look back and say the boat has already sailed because that's definitely also not true. I mean, back then, you built it and they will come is what I hear all the time, right? And that's probably how it was. It's not how it is anymore. You know, however, there are still plenty of amazing markets out there. And, you know, we're, we're building in Boston, um, we're building in upstate New York, and both markets are great. And there are many, many more out there. I think saturation is one thing. And, and a lot of people are saying, uh, you know, we, we don't want to build if it's, you know, more than seven square feet per capita or whatnot it is, right? And that's definitely a point, right? But I think what's even more valuable is probably looking at the price for a regular 10 by 10 to determine, you know, how, how is the supply-demand index. Um, if the mm. prices for a 10 by 10 is really high, then the demand probably follows. Then you can take a look at the square feet per capita. That's one thing. But... The demand is there if they are able to keep prices high. So that's really something that we adapted a lot more than just looking at a square foot per capita metric. Um, also, we try to position our facilities in locations that are easily accessible because people pluck it in to their GPS and they say, ah, well, it only takes five minutes. It might be that they're four or five miles away, but if the trip is like five, 10 minutes, they're still, you know, they're still within our range of customers. So by having that easy access, being on an off-ramp, for example, from a highway, just expands your potential customer range beyond that three miles. So I think that's something that we adapted and, and something that I've learned along the way. Um, I mean, the way I look at facilities and underwrite it and underwrite opportunities is ever-changing as, as I learn. And the way I underwrote our first facility that I'm sitting in today is very, very different compared to how I underwrite facilities now. So now we are, you know, back for this facility um, yeah, I'm sitting in now, we, we couldn't find any investors that were willing to go in with us. So we scrambled for capital and borrowed everything we possibly could and put it into this facility and, and did it on our own, proved the, the business case. And, and now we're working with, with investors and are dabbling into the PE world, which is a, a scary transition too, giving up some control, but um, we'll see where that ends up. Um, but in short, there are many amazing markets that I mean, the boat has not sailed at all, in, in our opinion. And if you take a look at conversions, it just expands your opportunity 
for which markets oh, yeah. can you build in, right? It might be harder to find a well-located building that, that works out and that you can get sewn and all that, but your cost of, of your basis for your investment is so much lower compared to if you were to either buy uh, an existing facility or built from scratch, buy the land and build from scratch. Um, so it instead of you know having to to see rents of you know two hundred dollars uh, for a ten by ten to be able to make it work to do a ground up construction, you know you can go down and you can look at you can look at rents that are one thirty one forty or so, and it opens up to a lot more markets where you know these the big guys are not going to come in because the real big guys are not going to come in and build more because. The numbers sure. don't make sense to do a ground up, but they make sense for conversion. So I think that's our niche. Now, <laughs> building in Boston, naturally, that makes sense to most people if, if they can find the land. But um, I think that's, uh, yeah. yeah. But I think that's, that's why well, we I, really chose conversions. I think conversions. that's huge. Yeah, I think that's why we really chose conversions. I mean, you have so many, so many markets that you can enter and you have a a project that instead of taking two years to get off the ground because you need entitlements and whatnot, you buy the building and you can literally be open six to nine months, right? So it's an amazingly quick process that drastically decreases your holding costs. And now with the interest rates being higher than, than they were, it's just even more important to get cash flowing as quickly as possible. Yeah. Do you want to talk us through um, what the conversion process looks like for uh, you know a, a, somebody who is familiar with self storage but um, has no idea otherwise? You know what a, a conversion looks like. Yeah, maybe sure. even I mean, the way that you could talk about it is through your first facility, the one that you're in now, and uh, what that looked like, what the building started as, and what you did to convert it. Yeah, I mean, um, the process for, for this facility, <clears throat> so it very much depends on the building, very much so. Uh, we bought this building at, uh, at a very good price, but it did have some issues that we needed to solve. So those issues we, we resolved pretty quickly. Uh, it was some rotten floors, some broken concrete, some columns that needed to be replaced and so on but getting that out of the way really it's demo it's a large part of it you demo it you prep all the surfaces if you need to do any structural improvements you do that and after that in goes the the metal petitions i mean it's it's a it's a simple process Yep. And yes, there are things in between there, small things here and there. You need to add a bathroom. You need to do this or that. But really, those are the big ones. And I think it's, it's such a simple process, but there's still so much that can go wrong. So that's one of the things that we are now doing differently is that before we close on the building, we already spent $100,000, dollars on, on pre-construction drawings, everything, uh, investigations into the building, knowing exactly what happens when we open up the different walls. We are not going to hit, 
you know, a burial ground or whatnot inside the walls or what it might be, right? Um, so we try to take as many unknowns out as possible because that's the concern with these conversion projects. You never know what happens when you start opening up the walls and whatever else you open up. Um, so that was just, I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know at the time when we built this facility. So we, we bought it not having any drawings or any pre-construction uh, investigations done and started the process. It took us nine months and it was a chaotic process for, for this facility. Um, but uh, pretty good, pretty good actually. Kept on budget, on time. Um, but it was again, you know, a lot of setbacks and then solving those issues. And it was a full-time job for me. Um, one thing I will definitely do is always choose a contractor that has experience in self-storage. Um, I did not do that for our first facility here, and that was definitely a mistake. And what did the building start as before you converted it? It was a gun manufacturing facility. So okay. <laughs> way back in the days, uh, they manufactured uh, like uh, uh, shells for, for guns. Actually, we have four gun vaults here, like walk-in gun vaults. Nice. And story goes that they were supposed to have each part of the gun stored in a separate vault such that if someone broke in, they had to break into all four vaults to assemble a gun, right? Wow. So we outfitted, we kept them, and I outfitted them with uh, biometric fingerprint scanners. Uh, so now I'm actually renting them out to, like, wine enthusiasts and whatever else. So you know, collectors and stuff That's like so that cool. for a premium. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great. Well, we... <laughs> When you're talking finger biometrics, I was about to say you got the most secure self-storage facility in the country. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe the most secure units, but it literally is a bank vault. <laughs> it literally is like a bank vault. And then you, you put your finger on, you type in your code, and then it clicks and you can open it, right? So, yeah, that's a fun process. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. Um, what... Casper, a question that I had for you was you had mentioned having a few single family properties, you were doing some of the construction work and then decided to go commercial. I think a lot of people have the limiting belief of, well, commercial real estate, it's too big, it's too expensive, I don't have enough money. You know, you've again, you've jumped in and, and went for it. So curious, you know, just speak to that a little bit, maybe some of those limiting beliefs that people have. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a different animal altogether, right? It's um, it's valued differently. It's definitely take your time, get to know the market, get to know whatever niche of commercial you want to to jump into. Like commercial commercial property, like that's that's just a huge umbrella, right? Take a look at what makes sense to you. Yep. Perhaps an extension of something you already have experience and already know something about, right? Um, and, and go into that, but yeah, it is different. It's a different risk profile. Like another asset class that we looked at was class C industrial. So the play was to take a class C building that was in a class B location because you can't change the location 
and upgrade it with the amenities that would turn it into a class B industrial and then sell it, make the spread, right? So that was another thing we were thinking about. But I really think if you already own some single family and you have, you've done that for a while and then, then you have access to some sort of capital. If it's through selling your single family, if it's through refi, if it's through like, <laughs> we, we took loans out on every single property we had to do this. Like we scrambled mm. for capital. Yeah. Really scrambled for capital. And we had relationship with the bank that believed in us. And uh, I don't want to use the word we got lucky uh, because I, I fundamentally do not believe in luck. But we definitely struck the right situations at the right time. And after you know pulling money out of every single asset we had, we had enough, enough capital to close on the loan and the construction loan for this, um, for the first storage facility, right? So I think it's, it really is the step from, from residential to commercial. Yes, it's more money, for sure. But there's a lot more upside. And there's a lot less work involved with owning a, a commercial property. If it's a single tenant, triple net, like determine how much time you want to spend on it. Do you want to spend every day operating it? Then perhaps you can do self-storage and you can build a self-storage facility. If you want to just buy something that you can leave alone and the tenant in there will pay on time and it's all good and great, then a triple net property is probably the way to go, some sort of triple net property. So I think there is a way, if you already own property, that you can get the capital needed. Start small. Start where you're comfortable. You know, commercial properties come in yeah. all shapes and sizes from a few hundred thousand to a few hundred million or more, right? So I think there is, there is something that, every, that depends on, on where you are in your journey, but there is somewhat, something for everyone to invest in. And just stay within your comfort level, I think, is probably pretty important. Good. Really good advice. I, uh, I love it. I know, uh, time-wise, um, here we're, uh, we're kind of getting close to, to wrapping up, but, um, one, uh, one more question that I have before Nick takes us to the, uh, final round of golden nugget questions is just what the, what the vision is for you now. Um, Moving forward, you've talked about uh, expanding with uh, a lot more conversion projects and doing that. Sounds like all over the East Coast, you've got a great network of people um, around you. I mean, do you see years and years ahead of you of running in this space or uh, are the wheels already starting to turn on other opportunities and this is kind of a launch pad into something else that you're hoping to do five, ten years down the road? No, I think uh, I, th I definitely see us staying uh, in this sector. Um, so we're we're at a point in our company where, again, like I said, you know, we can we can stay where we are and move one property at a time slowly, uh, wearing all the hats ourselves, keeping it lean, or we can start taking uh, a partnership with a, a another firm, a, a funder, a funding firm. 
uh, like a PE firm or something like that, and take it to the next level, start getting some infrastructure, uh, a team in place. Um, so that's what we are actively working on right now. Uh, having some certainty of funding for, for our deals going forward without having to spend weeks and months on raising the capital from, from real estate, uh, from uh, retail investors, $50,000 at a time, um, really is going to be an important factor in, in what we are aiming to do for 2024. Um, but I, I do see ourselves building a portfolio of, of self-storage conversion properties in, in the Northeast uh, and perhaps do an operate transaction uh, down the road. Um, but as long as it makes oh. sense, we will continue to rinse and repeat. Um, we, we, do, we do have a plan of diversifying our, our, uh, our income stream, though. And that is what we are currently working on as well. Some passive investments in other sectors, <laughs> as well as starting a support company, um, that one of the things we faced, the biggest issue for us was really developing professional materials, like really professional materials to show investors. Yeah. And those materials were just either ridiculously expensive or something boilerplate, basically crap coming out that looked like everything else that didn't really tell the story, right? So we started a small, we founded a small company that operates out of um, out of uh, our Europe actually with a team in Europe that takes care of this uh, for uh, aspiring sponsors so at a decent price does videos and everything and I think it's going to be a really cool support function to our business as well as uh, an offering to others yeah I uh, I like that is a vertical integration or uh, just being able to uh, to create something that's both going to serve your business, but hopefully uh, pay for itself because of the support that you'll be able to provide to other businesses as well. That's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's important like uh, to, to diversify our income stream a little bit. So um, yeah, that's what we're aiming to do. So, yeah. Done. Well, Nick, you want to take us to uh, Golden Nuggets, my man? Yeah, absolutely. So, Casper, we're going to wrap the show up here with the last four questions we ask all of our guests. And so I'm going to just kind of fire them at you here. Pick one of these, and I'm going to give you five options, and tell us what you're doing to improve yourself this year. So at Abundant Journey, we talk about the journey we're on. So one of the five Fs, so it's family, finance, faith, fitness, and future. We've covered a lot of these today, but pick one of these and tell us how you're excited for 2024 and looking to grow. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I think we touched on a lot of those. So I'm going to pick, that. I'm probably going to, I'm going to pick, uh, I'm going to pick fitness. I'm going to pick fitness. So I like it. I like it. I'm telling you, when I moved here and I'm like, it's not that, it's not that long going, 2020, I was, I was very, very fit. I was, I, I don't know, in pounds, like below 70 kilograms. I don't know what that is in pounds, but I've never converted. I'll completely. Like 150 pounds, right about there. Yeah, something like, yeah, something yeah. like that, yes. And yeah. 
I've never converted from kilograms to pound. I learned the foot and all that stuff, but you guys, I mean, you guys need to stop the, the foot and the pounds and all that. So, but that's a different okay. discussion. So that's I agree with there. you. All right. So, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, get, get, get real US, please. Uh, but no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so no, I, and now after having lived here in the US for three years, four years now, I guess, I'm like 230 pounds. What the heck happened, right? So yeah, I don't exercise as much anymore, I'll admit, but there is something in the food here that's not in Europe, I'll tell you. <laughs> so <laughs> that's my, uh, that's, my goal is definitely to get that routine back. I'm, I'm working a lot of hours and I'm working really hard these days to grow our company and it's my sole focus. But mm. I also know that for me to be successful as a human being and, and comfortable within my own skin, I need to be in, a, in decent shape. Um, it affects a lot, both energy level and self-perception. And I think that's definitely one of the things that that's my goal for 2024 is get that routine back, you know. I still get up at 5 a.m. every morning yeah. um, to, to work, but uh, I think it's just, it's just such an important thing. And, and whatever energy you put in to exercise, I remember it, whatever energy you put into that, go to the gym, whatever, what, whatever is your kink, right? Whatever energy you put into that, you get back tenfold. Like coming out yeah. from that morning training, you are so energized, right? So that's uh, not that I have to go back to 150 pounds and, you know, six pack and, you know, not a gram of fat on me. That's, that's not the goal. I'm not there anymore, right? <laughs> I'm almost 30. I'm turning sure. 30 in a few days. I'm turning 30. But, uh, <laughs> but definitely also not uh, 230 pounds. And, uh, you know, the, the dad butt that I've developed is definitely also not where I want to be. <laughs> there you go. So I think that's important. That's a good goal. Yeah, it is. It's not as deep That's as good. many as many others, but it's it's something that no, I know I will will propel me forward, also in in business as well as personal life. So it's no, something that's gotten right. lost along the way. It's all, it's all connected, and it's good to yep. recognize that. Yep, absolutely. Well, next one here, you gave us one of your favorite quotes early on, which I love. So if something else comes to you, great. If not, no big deal. But what's a quote from a book or mentor that stuck with you along your journey? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I, I, do, I do think I, I really want to bring that quote up that I, I mentioned before, because it is, it is just something that I remember every time there's something hard I have to do. I remember that in order to do what others can't, you have to sacrifice yeah. or be willing to do what others won't, right? And yeah. I just, every time I have to get up at four or five in the morning or whatever it might be, or do something that I really just don't want to do, I think about this quote. I think back, I think back to the look in my coach's eyes when he told me this, he was dead serious, you know, like dead serious. And he's been doing that his entire life, you know? And mm. I think that will stay with me uh, hopefully for a very, very long time. And I can pass it on to, 
to my children that that mentality of of hard work and and being willing to sacrifice for what yeah. you believe in. Mm-hmm. It's good. I love that, and I don't think that quote could be said enough. I mean, it's it's a it's a daily reminder. So what a, what a great one here to end on. Next one, what is a dream or goal that you have that you've not been able to accomplish yet? Hmm. I think I think there there are a lot of a lot of aspects that make a person. A lot of areas in one's life that make a person, right? You can excel in all these different areas of life. But it's very hard to do at the same time. It's very hard to improve all aspects at the same time. And I think that being being able to being able to focus on on other aspects of my life at the at the same time as how do I say this? I become very focused on one aspect. For example, right now I'm very focused on excelling my my company, right? Growing my company, getting these deals done. And I spend a lot of time on that. And every single day, my focus is that. But then I lose myself on the fitness level. I, I'm not the best husband all the time. I don't spend all the time I want with my wife, right? Um, so I think being able to not transfer my focus, but add focus to the other aspects of life mm-hmm. and make myself a more complete person is is a goal that I want to achieve. Like when mm-hmm. I was doing professional uh, athlete, that's what I was doing. I had no friends left. I had nothing. That's what I did. You know, that was my focus 100%. So I need to be able to focus on several aspects of my life. And that's a goal that I just haven't been able to achieve yet. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really good. And I, I think a lot of people feel that tension, whether you have a family with kids, uh, Nick and I both have young kids, uh, or, or be married, or even just other, uh, other things that, that occupy, have needs and time and space. And so always continue continuing to juggle that. That's, that's a great goal to keep working on. And I, I don't know that we ever master it fully. So I love that one. Last question here. Last question here. At the end of your life, what do you hope you'll be remembered for? Hmm. Hmm. It's a good question. I think at the at the end of my life, what I want to be remembered for, hmm, it's probably just having having provided the right sort of circumstances for my family, not not monetarily or anything, but having been a, a good husband, a good father, left a, a footprint behind that people will remember me as as a kind person who in, enjoyed what he did and, and gave back as much as he could and, you know, gave people a, a chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, I wouldn't be here today unless... People, people who, who I met gave me a chance, uh, even sometimes mm. when they probably shouldn't have, mm. right? And I think that's how I want to be remembered. Not judging, not judging the book by its cover, but 
getting to know a person before before I make a decision, giving them a chance to prove who they are and what they can what they can bring to the table. Um, I think that's yeah. super important. I mean, I I don't have the most impressive background when when you're thinking about it educationally. So a lot of people took a chance on me, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> I think that's something I definitely want to keep alive and want to be remembered for. Never being this judgmental uh, person that that didn't that didn't give the people around me a chance. It's a fantastic response, man. And uh, I mean, that's one of the beauties of entrepreneurship is the ability that it gives you to create opportunities for others. Um, it's it's just such a cool thing. A lot of people think of entrepreneurship as just building something for yourself, but. The reality is, is once you've achieved uh, some degree of success, um, you then have the opportunity to uh, to create pathways for others to to follow. And I appreciate the ways that you're already uh, doing that in the the generosity of your time, uh, taking an hour to sit down with us and share about your story and your experiences. And uh, I know that as you continue to network and meet people and as you grow in your own experience and influence in this space, you're going to have a lot more uh, other people who are looking to do their first facility and they're going to be asking, all right, how did you get your first view? And um, just, uh, just, you know, don't forget us when you're starting your multi-thousand dollar mentorship program. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. I, I don't think it will ever get to that. And it's, it's, it's really been a, a true pleasure speaking to you guys. I mean, uh, I, I, I really like what you guys are doing. Like, getting people out there and you know i've never been on a podcast before it's it's been a it's been it's been really great ah well you're a natural man uh thank you so much if uh if people do want to connect with you follow along with your journey um see some of the stuff that you're doing with uh self-storage conversions do you have any spots where you'd send them websites or social media profiles yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, they are more than welcome to look me up on LinkedIn or any other uh, place that they could possibly find me. Um, our website, bellmangroup.com, also has both a little bit of about what we're doing and uh, also my personal contact information. Cool. So reach out, please. That's awesome. I will include those links in the show notes, listeners. So uh, do connect with Casper on there and follow along. And uh, while you're in your browser looking him up, make sure you also pop over to AbundantJourney.net. If you haven't signed up for our for our newsletter, please be sure to do so. And um, if you enjoyed anything that you heard here, benefited from it, well, the best way that you can show us some love is by sharing the episode with somebody else who you think would uh, benefit from it or enjoy it. At the very least, if you could click that five-star button on your podcast player of choice, that helps more people discover the show and inspire others in their entrepreneurial journeys. So that's all we got for this week. Look forward to being back with everybody again very soon. Once again, Casper, you're the man. Thank you so much and all the best to you in uh, your continued endeavors in this space. 